Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Before we introduce today's guest, we've got some exciting announcements that we'd like to make to our listeners. The first one, as most of you are probably aware, we released our book, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly, on November 27th of 2019. It's now a year to the day since the release of the book, and on the back of that, we brought the podcast out, and we're now really, really excited to announce that the Goldust platform will be delivering and presenting our own courses and mentoring programs to help you become a more effective coach quickly. For more information on the courses and the mentoring, you can head to www.thegolddustcoach.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast for more information. Now, without further ado, we're really excited to welcome today's guest onto the podcast. We've got Dan Abrams, the world-renowned sports psychologist, author, and host of his own podcast, The Sports Psych Show. Enjoy. Welcome, Dan, and thank you for your time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Keith, for inviting me on. For the listeners, just share with us your background in sport. Well, um, how far can I go back? So um, I'm a former professional golfer. Um, I was uh, a player um, after I left school and then I was a coach, a PGA coach, PGA qualified. Um, and as I was coaching golf, I uh, went off and I did a degree in psychology and a master's degree in sports psychology and I became a full-time sports psychologist about 15 years ago. I I left the golf behind, became a a sports psychologist and I've worked across a range of sports Um, but I suppose I predominantly divide my time between football and golf so that that that's where where I've uh, I've focused in the last 15 years I'd say. And, and most recently, you also you're you're an author and you're on a very a great podcast called the the Sports Psych Podcast, of which you've reached half a million listeners now. I have, Keith. Yeah, it's uh, it's because I have great guests. So I have people like yourself and David on, and um, people people tune in because of the guests, less less so because of the host. I'd say I haven't quite perfected the Michael Parkinson uh, ability yet, but uh, so that's the Sports Psych Show, and that's that's been going for a couple of years now. And uh, author wise, I've I've written four books: Soccer Tough back in two thousand twelve, Soccer soccer brain soccer tough two and golf tough um so uh, a bit of an emphasis on the word tough but um yeah so uh author podcaster consultant blogger um i suppose you name it i'd do it really (laughs) Uh, obviously quite busy now coming back to the sports psych stuff dan Mm. i think we all have milestones we have experiences in the life where there's a defining moment in your life where you thought, you know, Summit, I think this is my bag. I like the sports psych stuff. 
was there any defining moments where that would actually occurred? Um, I think it was probably a series of moments. I mean, I was uh, quite an anorakish teenager in as much as I was reading sports psychology books when I was about 15, 16 years old, probably when I should have been chasing girls. Um, I was, I was reading Timothy Galway's in a game of golf. And, and then when I left school and I became a full-time amateur golfer, I picked up um, a book called golf is not a game of perfect by dr bob Rutella, who i believe made a huge difference in certainly in the golf industry in terms of uh, um, the prominence of golf psychology or psychology within golf um so the the interest in me was growing at that stage um and then i saw a couple of sports psychologists when i was a young professional um, and had kind of mixed success with that, I must be honest. And then when I moved on to coaching the game, I think that cemented my real interest and love for the psychological side of sport. As a golf coach, it's an interesting form of coaching. You're delivering for 40 hours a week and you're delivering to a cross-section of society the housewife, the businessman, the lawyer, the chief exec, the six-year-old kid, group of 10-year-old tear-away kids, um, the professional player, the scratch handicap, the 24 handicap, older, middle-aged, you know, you're really seeing a cross-section of levels, society, ages, etc. So with that in mind, I think that the psychological side of coaching within golf is quite prominent. And I decided as I was coaching that I would go to university. I would do a degree in psychology. Um, and I think at that time I was kind of thinking I'd just keep carrying on coaching and that would be my career golf coach. But then I went on and I did a master's degree in sports psychology. And I really came to a bit of a juxtaposition like, do I carry on doing the golf coaching or do I, do I become a full-time sports psychologist? And I chose the latter because at that time, academically, it was going to suit me more. I think the landscape of coaching is, is changing every year. And in the last 15 years for all sports, it's become much more academic. You've been able to get more qualifications and go on and do masters in coaching and all, all these kind of academic qualifications i think back then i'm not saying it wasn't available of course it was but it was less prominent and i kind of felt sports psychology would be a, a route that would be a bit more intellectually taxing that that was how i felt i think maybe that might be wrong or unfair but that's how i felt and i also wanted to work in a range of sports um not just golf so that's what i chose i chose sports psychology at that stage so i think it was a sort of a gradual build from sort of 15 years old right the way through to my late 20s when I, when I finally made the decision to become a sports psych. Now, Dan, in being an ex-professional golfer, which we've just spoke about, mm. do you think you're best placed to understand the mental demands put on both golfers and, and other professional athletes? So I know you've worked in, in football as well. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So I think it helps if you have played sport to a good level i think it as a sports psychologist it helps you be a better sports psychologist it's not uh, an absolute necessity i think it helps i think it helps if you've experienced what other athletes have experienced i think it helps if 
you know, if we're talking about working in golf, there's just something about seeing a sports psychologist who's been a professional golfer. I think that's something that resonates with golfers themselves. And again, that can be still down to individual differences. I've definitely had golfers who have said to me, oh, well, I'm not, you know, when I was with England golf, they might have said, oh, I kind of like seeing people who haven't been involved in golf because, you know, I, I just want to get away from the golf and, and talk to a sports psychologist who, who hasn't been involved in golf, which would be fair as well. But there is definitely something really, um, I suppose, advantageous for golfers if they're sitting down with me and they know that I know the landscape so well. Um, I think that if you've coached as well, I've always said to, I get dozens, as you can imagine, of young university graduates who want to be sports psychologists and they'll email me and, and sort of ask me what, what path they should take. And I obviously can't get back to everybody, but the ones I do get back to or when I have in the past, well, I think I've got a bit of a template now that I send off and it kind of says, go and coach because I think your capacity to be a great sports psychologist or a better sports psychologist is heavily mediated by coaching. I think coaching is a really important skill to develop if you want to be a great sports psychologist, in my opinion. And that's not to say that you can't be a great sports psychologist without having coached a sport. I do think if you've played and you coached, that helps. Um, so absolutely. As you mentioned there, I mean, I divide my time primarily between golf and football. I do work in other sports, but those were my main ones. And I started pretty much afresh in football in 2005, around that time. And I was always a, a, a supporter as a kid. I played at school, but I wasn't, I was okay, but I wasn't that good and didn't really take it anywhere. Um, I was a, a, a Spurs supporter growing up, which in the 90s was pretty painful. Um, and uh, I, I loved football. And when I became a sports psychologist, I was, I was like, when I got my qualifications and had my supervision, I looked around and I thought, well, what other sport do I want to specialize in? Because I, I think to further answer your question, David, and I think it's a really good one. I do think there's something about a sports psychologist knowing the language of the sport they're working in and knowing the specific challenges they're facing. I think that that can be really useful. Again, it's, it's, it's not an absolute necessity, but um, I, I was, when I was a pro golfer, I listened to some sports psychologists speak about golf and rightly or wrongly, maybe I was a bit narrow minded. I just thought, oh, can I really put my career in your hands with the way that you're, you know, speaking about golf, you don't know much and I'm, I'm not too sure. So I was dead set back in 2005 and really learning the language of the game of, of football learning the specific challenges that players felt uh, face sorry and so i got involved at non-league level really immersed myself in that environment i worked with a really good coach called wayne burnett at step six so it was called the blue square south back then and he's now boy he's at spurs now he's the under 23s coach has worked under pochettino and Mourinho. so he's deservedly gone on to do great things and it was a wonderful wonderful baptism uh, we had a whole bunch of young players. I mean, Wayne likes to play in a manner that people might say it's the right way. You know, plays out on from the back and um, plays attractive football. And we had a bunch of young players who came through and we had an average age of 21 guys, 21 in a division that the average age was 28. 
uh, ordinarily. And I think we finished in the playoffs and we, we lost in the first round, the semi-final of the playoffs to go up to the conference. Um, but seven of those players went back into league football. And it was just brilliant. I just learned so much about the game in those couple of years working at non-league. And, and then it kind of built from there, which I'm sure we can go on to talk about. But I, I was really passionate at that time about really learning about football. I, I haven't played it, so I can't say I've got that experience. I've never coached it. And I would never stand in a room with a bunch of coaches and say, I'm an expert on football. I wouldn't do that. That's not right. I could say I'm an expert on golf, I'd like to think. Um, I don't know, some of my former golfing colleagues might say otherwise, but I'd like to think I am, but not football. That, that would be wrong of me to say. But I have built up really good experience, you know, and I've had the honour and pleasure over the last 15 years of spending thousands of hours standing by the side of Premier League and Championship football uh, uh, pitches, uh, training pitches. So I, I do have some experiences that others don't have, but I'm not an expert. That's important. Equally, when I was lead psychologist for England rugby, I can assure you I certainly wasn't an expert in rugby. If I walk into, you know, I, I worked with a boxer a few months ago going into a world title and I'm not an expert in boxing. So I think as a sports psychologist, I try to uh, equip myself with as much knowledge about the sport as possible. But I've chosen a couple of sports where I can really specialize. I really know the language. I really know the challenges that players face. And then when I work in another sport, I can go, hey, you know, I'm not the expert, but I'm passionate about human performance. I know a lot about human performance and I can help you. We've just got to find the way it applies to you at this moment in your sport. I'm going to ask you another question related to that now. Yeah. So you've touched on the golf, the football. Yeah. That's where you've, you've specialized your time. Now you've just mentioned rugby. You mentioned obviously the rugby where you, you weren't well-versed in the sport at the time, I'm guessing. And then you've just mentioned boxing. Yep. So I, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to throw a random sport out there. Say mm. you've got a tennis player or a cricketer, or a basketball, or American football, whatever it may be, in your bag of psychological tools and strategies, are there any quick fix techniques for helping to quieten or soften an athlete's negative internal dialogue, regardless of the sport? Yeah, absolutely, uh, David. And, and this is something that I'm, I'm passionate about demystifying sports psychology for all participants of all ages. And I think that we in sports psychology need to do a better job. We can't abuse the science that, that's out there. We can't simply make stuff up. But at the same time, we need to be able to take the science and we need to be able to make it as fun as possible, as applicable, practical as possible as accessible as possible in all sports and if I've got a cricketer or a tennis player coming to see me of course I'm going to help that individual in the way that they need to be helped that's first and foremost however however you've mentioned negative thoughts and you've mentioned have I got a, a technique in my bag of tricks a trick in my bag of tricks that I could use across all sports and as I say, you mentioned negative thoughts, and I call negative thoughts ants. Ants, as in not the insect, insect ant, as in A for automatic, N for negative, T for thoughts. A for negative, N for negative, T for thoughts. Ants. And one of the things I always talk to players about 
is helping them build the capacity to squash their ants, to squash their ants. And there's lots of ways you can do that. And there's lots of psychological evidence purporting to the different ways you can do that. For instance, there's a, a therapy out there called ACT, which stands for Acceptance Commitment Therapy, which, as the name suggests, it's really about accepting the thoughts that emerge in your mind and then committing to placing your attention elsewhere. Um, that's ACT. Um, and lots of people like to use that and that's fine and that helps people turn down a volume of ants or squash their ants I like to use mental skills mental techniques practical techniques and one technique that I use with a lot of people is a technique I'll call a game face a game face I think it's really important that competitors participants in all sports know what their game face is start in their game face stay in their game face so a bowler in cricket will bowl in their game face a batsman will bat in his or her game face a tennis player will pl strive to play every point game every set every match in their game face and what a game face does is it, is it, it helps players to squash the ants when they experience the ants the automatic negative thoughts will turn the volume down of their ants so rather than have a noisy volume of, oh, I'm doing no good, I'm playing rubbish, I'm feeling really flat and lethargic today, I've got no chance, whoa, stop. Let's turn down the volume of those thoughts. If they're up at eight out of 10, let's turn it down to seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Now I say that because really we can't turn them down to zero. We're always gonna have, not all the time, but often we're gonna have some volume of negative thought in our mind. That's, that's the reality of the human being competing in sport. Now, more on the game face. The game face is the attitude you want to have on, let's say, the pitch or the court or the course. It's the personality you want to be. It's your optimal mental state and it optimizes your physical state. It's a how-to guide in terms of how you want to execute every single action. Now, what I'll do, you two are from the world of football, so let's just stick to, to football for the time being. We'll bring it into tennis and we'll bring it into cricket as well. So I have a client at the moment who happens to be a player who played in the Champions League final a few years ago. And his game face is relentless and dominant. Relentless and dominant. Relentless and dominant. When he goes out onto the pitch, he's striving to be relentless and dominant. And he has a narrative of nothing and no one takes me away from relentless and dominant. If I give the ball away, relentless and dominant. If we go a goal down, relentless and dominant. If I miss a chance to score, relentless and dominant. If my cross goes into row Z, relentless and dominant. If I lose a 1v1 battle, relentless and dominant. That's what I'm trying to do. Execute every single responsibility within my role, relentless and dominant. Now, we came up with that game face, relentless and dominant, because I asked him one of the most important questions I think anybody can ask any competitor or participant in a sport and that's tell me about you at your best and we spent a bit of time talking about him playing at his best and he came up with these terms relentless relentless with my runs relentless with my movement relentlessly good body language dominant dominant body language dominant in the air we applied it to every responsibility within his role and that's what he strives to be on the pitch to be it to do it to act it that's his game face another player i work with is confident relentless lion and sometimes I, I get players to think of an animal that they might relate to the words. Another player 
I'm, I'm working with is sharp, aggressive Terry, as in John Terry. Sometimes I get them to relate it to a player. So sharp, aggressive Terry, that's a central defender who plays in the Premier League. Another, another player, um, uh, I can mention this player, Ali Long, who plays for the US Women's National Team. She's, she's sharp. No, I beg your pardon. She's dominant focus Busquets. Dominant focus Busquets. Because she was going to, a, uh, back in 2016, she was going into a trial period with the US national team. She wanted to really impress Jill Ellis and she was a bit anxious about it. And so she had a lot of automatic negative thoughts, a lot of ants. To help her squash her ants, we came up with a game face of dominant focus Busquets. Dominant focused and then Busquets because she loves Sergio Busquets and she plays in the holding midfield role. So dominant focus Busquets. So that's what she tries to be on the pitch. So rather than worrying about what Jill Ellis thought of her or what the other well, her teammates thought of her. She focused on just being dominant focus biscuits to do it, be active. And you can use this in any sport. So in golf, I've had players focus on being macker bounce. Player I worked with, he played in the British Open a few years ago. He was an amateur player at the time. And he was very, very nervous. In fact, he was having the kind of ants, automatic negative thoughts, revolving around don't shoot 90. Don't be terrible, which you don't want to shoot 90 in the British Open, I can assure you. And so he came up with a game face of Macca Bounce. Macca Bounce because he loves Rory McIlroy. I asked him what he loved Rory McIlroy, what, what he loves most about him. And he said, it's the way he bounces around the course. And so Macca Bounce became his game face. So he walked onto the first team Macca Bounce. Rather than worrying about the ants and focusing on the ants, he became Macca Bounce. I've got a tennis player I'm working with. There you go. I do work in tennis a little bit. Uh, who is aggressive alert Halep. Aggressive alert Halep. Halep after the, did she win? I can't remember which. She won Wimbledon, didn't she, a, a couple of years ago, I think. But aggressive and alert. Aggressive with every run, every movement. Um, aggressive with her, with her uh, forehand, with her backhand. Aggressive with her footwork. Alert, always alert, always alive aggressive alert Hallett. And you can use the same for a cricketer because it's just about breaking it down into action-based words, action-based words. They've got to be able to act out these words and be and do these words and breaking it maybe down into a model player or an animal. So one footballer I'm working with is, as I think I said this earlier, confident, relentless lion. He's a very good player. He, works, he plays for his international side, Premier League player. Confident, relentless lion. So when he goes on the pitch, I'm confident, relentless lion. I'm a lion in the penalty area. I'm relentlessly trying to attack six-yard area. I'm relentlessly trying to get on the end of crosses. I hold confident body language of all time, at all times. Think about the narrative these players now have. Rather than, than their narrative, their inner story being revolving around the ants, the automatic negative thoughts. Got to perform, got to perform. Don't mess up, don't mess up. Don't miss chances. Oh, I'm not feeling it. Oh, I'm not sure about this Saturday. We're playing against such a good, strong, tough team. It's just going to be in my game face. That's all I can do. That's all I expect from myself. So this works on so many levels, but it predominantly works around confidence. Confidence, attitude, personality, getting into the right mental state, optimizing your physical self. That's what I'd say to that. You're replacing what they don't want with something of greater importance. And a lot of the science says that we need to have an approach focus going into a game. There's a very prominent theory right now uh, called 
challenge and threat states. And what researchers are find what researchers are finding that in a challenge state, which is a positive response to competition, where we play on the front foot, where we're confident, where we feel in control, we're also in an approach state rather than an avoidant state. Okay. In simple terms, guys, the way the brain works, it works in two directions. One of two directions. It either works away from or towards. It's avoiding, okay, or approaching. What the research suggests is we want to focus on the things we want to do. We want to have positive intent executed with intensity out there on the pitch or the court or the course. And so you're quite right saying, David, it's focusing on what you want. It's being approach that's a challenge state in the research literature as opposed to a threat state so dan you've done consultancy work with a number of football clubs both here you work with coaches and teams globally and listening to that wonderful answer in regards to creating a a positive stimulus response through changing language because language is such a powerful means isn't it we change a word we change the meaning then we've got to get an action from that so helping players to to come up with their own words something that they can associate to and with they've got to then show it so that's working with individuals but if you work with teams what does an efficient dressing room environment look like and do those ingredients still exist in regards to the communication and building a culture? Yeah, look, I think, oh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a broad question, Keith. And I, I think, so which direction could we take this in? I think you've used that word culture, um, which is a really fascinating word. It's a fascinating landscape, especially right now, whereby I'm about to talk about the adult elite level here. So say the Premier League level or La Liga or Serie A. The culture of a team is important, vital. There's no doubts about that. But what is culture? What is culture? There's been an interesting phenomenon over the last 30 years whereby sports has borrowed from industry from organizational psychology where the literature has very much lent towards this idea of a shared identity or shared values and actually culture the study of culture stems my understanding anyway stems from anthropological research and anthropologists actually when they studied culture yes they were looking at what people shared within a culture but also what differences there were or there are in a culture it's what's shared and what's different and that's something that's often not considered in the cultures within the teams or at the adult elite level today we've become very obsessed with creating a shared identity and shared values and that shared identity might be around a game model but we also have to appreciate what's different within our cultures. If we want to have a great team, if we want to have a strong team, yes, we might want to have a shared identity, say around a game model and about what we say and what we do in and around the training ground and off the pitch. 
yes, we want to have shared values, courage, bravery, honesty, values like those kind of words. But we also need to appreciate differences. Everybody's different. And it can be very challenging for some people to fit into the club's values, the club's identity. And that's what we have to consider as leaders of teams, as head coaches, as managers, as coaches in general. We have to consider what's shared, what's different. There's nothing wrong with doing a, a, a session on shared values. Let's do that. Brilliant. But then we need to have conversations with people who perhaps find it difficult to align themselves with those values. I do wonder if some of those Premier League teams with respect are having those conversations are respecting individual differences i look at some of them and i just wonder if if that's happening so i think the cultural piece is really really interesting especially in modern day you know again if we go to the adult elite level if we go to the premier league it's a global league like all leagues are these days and global players want to come and play but global players from different cultures with different needs, wants, hopes, doubts, beliefs, expectations, values, etc. And I suppose the overarching component here is what I would call a psychologically informed environment. I think if we want to team players, we need to have what we might call in psychology a psychologically informed environment, P-I-E, a pie. So in a pie is when we as a coaching staff sit down and have really good conversations, robust conversations about our people, our players. And when I say robust conversations, I mean about their thoughts or taking into consideration their thoughts, their feelings, their personalities, their experiences. That's vital. We can't just say these people are footballers and that's who they are and that's their identity and they've just got to get on with it. We can't just say my opinion anymore. Well, this is Club X and this is our identity. This is who we are and they've just got to fit in. And I think that's what one or two clubs are doing right now. And I just wonder, I just wonder if they're a little bit too vociferous about doing that and they're not quite onboarding players. Their pie, their psychologically informed environment isn't quite good enough. They're not developing another important term here, psychological safety. Psychological safety is giving players the space to be who they are, be authentic, essentially, express vulnerability, push back a little bit, give their own ideas, express their own doubts and worries and anxieties. That's really important. That might seem like an individual thing, but that feeds into the team. So I think the standard answer here, Keith, tends to be, well, we work on a shared identity and we work on shared values and maybe beliefs. And uh, there's very interesting work in this area that's saying, well, hang on. When you're dealing with global players, that's not always the case. Even when you're just dealing with players from the local area, not everybody's the same. Everyone in the local area has different ethnicities and races and backgrounds and cultures and expectations and parental influence, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have to be a bit smarter. I think we have to have a slightly more sophisticated psychology or psychological process to create a team, to team people. Yes, we want to have an identity. Yes, we want to have shared values, but we need to appreciate differences. And that means having a pie 
and that means having psychological safety amongst probably many other things that you know we could talk about sure just a scenario down if you're working with with a group of players where they've got a yeah, they've got that shared identity there is a, a positivity in the dressing room they are this perceived great they've got a good team culture when they're on the pitch they're supportive of each other in mm-hmm. a constructive manner even when things are not working but they still support but yet they're on a little bit of a losing streak what strategies would you put in place working with the team would you work with the coaches would you work with the individuals how would you go about doing and dealing with that the first conversation i would be having would be with the head coach and see where the land lies there because that's the most important stakeholder for me i can't just start demanding that i work with the players i could recommend it but i can't demand that so the first conversation I would be having would be a head coach. And based on the conversation that we have, I would submit my recommendations. But let me give you an idea of where that could go. There's a fantastic approach called appreciative inquiry. Appreciative inquiry to appreciate, to hold an inquiry of appreciation. And what that appreciative inquiry does in very, very simple terms, because there's various steps, but in very simple terms, it asks members of the team, members of the coaching staff, about what's strong, what works, what's good, what's been successful. When things have gone well, what's helped us to make things go well? essentially, when we've been playing great, what's that looked like? What have others experienced when they've played us when we've been playing really well? If there was a camera on us on our best game, what would that camera see? And you can dive deeper in with more open-ended questions, but what you're trying to elicit are the kind of behaviours that the group perceives to be are, I suppose, winning behaviours, right? but breaking it down into tangible and as controllable behaviors as possible. So maybe members of the team might say, well, we're, we're nonstop positive vocal uh, or we're nonstop positive with our vocals would be a better way or a better way of putting it from an English perspective. Um, we keep great body language. We support each other. We hold the line better. Um, because our midfielders are getting back in helping our defenders. You know, you could, you could, I dare say that conversation would branch out into the tech tack piece as well, maybe the physical piece. You're trying to elicit those moments of strength because, as you've mentioned, if you've got a scenario with a good culture, with a strong team, with a strong ethic, and there's a slump of form, there's a few bad results, then often what you'll find is happening is that the players are rehearsing failure. Because that's what players do. Players house a story in their mind of what's going on in, yes, their world, but the world of their club, you know, the world of what they think of other players and how that's going, what they think of their coaching staff. And what you really want to try and do as a coach is guide them towards and in a, in a story and in a narrative that's 
essentially positive, right? I'm not a big one for saying posit the word positive all the time, but essentially positive. And then helping them to come out with two or three or four action points that they can then focus on as a team, that they're going to get right in the next game. And that's the key here. And so we move into something in psychology that we call achievement goal theory, achievement goal theory, which is trying to help players in, as individuals and as a group to focus on tasks, to focus on mastery rather than to focus on ego and performance. Essentially the things they can control or get as close to controlling as possible versus the things they definitely can't control. And again, what you'll often find is those, in those moments, in those times when the performance is poor and or when we're not winning, that we tend to, got to win, got to win this week, got to win this week, ego, got to perform this week, got to perform this time, got to be better than last time. And everybody becomes very anxious around outcome and performance. And really, we want to try to focus everybody's attention on those tasks that they can go and execute. And that's our job to go and execute. And I think it's incumbent on the coach. The conversation I would try to have with the coaching staff is in many respects, we've got to get away from the word win and perform the words win and perform and onto task onto these tasks. If we lose, we lose. I do think in those situations, Keith and David, we've, we, we've got to be quite philosophical about winning and losing because everybody's anxious and tense around winning and losing and high performance, get away from those. And let's be demanding on ourselves with these tasks. Let's get these tasks right. Let's support each other with these tasks and go and do that. If we go and do that, then the performance takes care of itself. I'm going to change tact a little bit with the question. Yep. You've got an athlete who's excellent at practice, but then you put them into a game, it completely changes. So I'll use the example of golf. You have a golfer who's excellent on the driving range knocking it 250 300 yards and very very consistent mm -hmm. they've got a range of tricks a range of tools that they can use in all different clubs you put a scorecard in the hand and that game disappears mm -hmm. what could be reasons behind that yeah look it's a really good question and and i suppose i've well david i think i've kind of warmed up that answer um, with my previous answer, actually, and I'm, I'm going to come back to achievement goal theory. You know, we're so socialized in sport into, well, two things, really. We're socialized into outcome and performance, really paying attention to that and setting objectives around those two things. Got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform. If, if it's a golf scenario, it might be got to shoot low score, got to hit great shots, got to hit fairways and greens. And, and so we're socialized into outcome and performance. And, and, and there's nuance here. I'm not saying that as, as performers, as competitors, we completely ignore outcome and performance. I'm not saying that at all. But we have to rationalize those. And on that basis of rationalization, the second thing we're very socialized into in, in sports is extreme language. I have to. I must. It will be a disaster if I don't. It will be the end of the world. We're very socialized into extreme forms of language, black and white, all or nothing, musts. And so two things. 
outcome performance mindset. We've got to be better at saying, look, I know I want to win. I know I want to do well, right? I know I want to shoot low score. Let's park that. And again, there's nuance here. There's times when I help players set objectives around outcome. Then with performance, this is where it's a bit more subtle. We've got to have language around, well, what are my KPIs? What are my key performance indicators that I can get close to controlling that I can focus on? And in football speak, it's not completing my passes. It's executing a, a crisp pass or trying to get a great strike on a pass. It's not completing the pass. It's, it's executing a great strike on a pass. That might be a good KPI for a young player that's closer to being able to control. And then we've got mindset. So outcome performance mindset. So we need to help players set objectives around mindset and KPIs, key performance indicators that they can pretty much control or get close to controlling. And the mindset stuff is that game face, squashing the ants, using self-talk, keeping great body language, those kind of things. That's what I want a golfer to do. I work with lots of golfers, as you know. I want them to stick to their game face. I want them to execute ruthless routines. I want them to take charge of every single golf shot. If they're on their C game, so they're not playing very well, they're not quite timing it, they're not striking it very well, I still want them to take charge of every every shot. I still want them to be in their game face. I still want them to execute ruthless routines. That's mindset. I still want them to have the same thoughts or swing thoughts or feelings that they would always have. That's a KPI that they can control. That's crucial there. So that's, that's the outcome performance mindset process. And that's the uh, achievement goal theory. Then you've got the extreme language. We've got to get away from extreme language. I just use some extreme language in that extreme language by saying you've got to get away from extreme language. That's a good form of using extreme language. We've got to get away from extreme language. It's, you know, I must, 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 must stop. And this is a really interesting, at least I think it's interesting thing about football, for instance, in as much as every footballer goes on the pitch and it's got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform, especially, especially around the performance. When I ask players what they're trying to achieve, it's all about got to perform, got to stay in the team, got to keep my place, got to impress, got to score goals, got to keep clean sheets. And it's just like you're setting yourself up for anxiety. You're setting yourself up for tight and tense. So, I want that narrative Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to be much more nuanced. I want, I'd love to play my best game, but I have to accept my best possible game. I have to accept my best possible game. Some days a six out of 10 is the best I'll do and that's okay. And if we go back to that player who's got that game face of relentless and dominant, we spoke about at the beginning, he played, He's one of the best players in the world, to be quite frank. He plays Champions League. And we very much have the language of, look, some days a six out of 10 is good enough because he stayed in his high performance mindset and that's all he can ask from himself. And that's okay because the game is too complicated to demand anymore. It's too hard. And the human system is too complex to demand anymore. 
anxiety happens to you, worry happens to you, doubt happens to you, dropping confidence happens to you, these things emerge and happen to you at any given time. You've just got to have the capacity to deal with that. But some days a six out of 10 is good enough. Some days your C game in golf, that's all it's going to be. But you've got to have the ability to get the most from that C game. And that comes back to executing your KPIs and your mindset process. That to me is how you help a golfer take it from the practice ground to the course because everything about his or her language is going to be extreme. Probably he or she is relaxed on the practice ground, the driving range, tense on the course because of extreme language and revolving too much around outcome and performance, the things that are out of their control. I talked about language and the words that people say to themselves, their internal dialogue, whether it be positive or negative, and I'm going to move it on to visualization and, and imagery. Yep. In your opinion, how important is the visualization and imagery in the success of athletes' performances? I think it's, I think there's individual difference. I think that, and I think the research backs that up. I think it's made more important when somebody believes in it and takes it seriously. However, that doesn't mean that somebody has to be too structured about it, in my opinion. I think people can be relaxed about it. By that, I mean, I think they can do it while they're brushing their teeth or having a shower or chilling out pockets of two and three minutes here and there. And as I say, I think they've got a, I think some people have a, a, a capability to do it better than others. And I also think some people believe in it more than others. If you don't believe in it, I'm convinced it's going to help. I'm not too sure on the research there, but that would be my opinion, I think, or my experience. And I think that, obviously, there's different types of imagery. Cognitive-specific imagery is the, the posh scientific term for picturing your skills, your motor skills, your movements, your behaviors, your actions. Motivational general mastery imagery, I think, is to kind of picturing yourself competing at 100% percent intensity levels there's different types of imagery and so i think using a, a range of different types of imagery can be quite important how would a, an athlete find out which form of imagery works for them it's an interesting one for me guys because imagery and visualization is almost built into what i do and the way i go about things without even using those terms and actually i i tend to just use the term picturing even though i understand that you know we want to strive to use every single sense if we go back to this technique of game face as i'm talking to a player about a game face i'm asking them if they can see themselves do that you know i might say to them yeah this sounds a bit of a strange question but can you kind of see yourself be relentless and dominant on the pitch as you sit there now i know that's a bit weird but can you more often than not, or even every time, they'll go, yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, relentless and dominant. I said, can you just describe that to me? What, what are you seeing here? And so I'm kind of priming them to 
picture it and give me some feedback. And I might ask them, is there anything that you're feeling as well? Is when you're seeing yourself do this, this uh, being relentless and dominant on the pitch, are you feeling anything as well? And that's always interesting because they might give me an emotion back. So an affect, an, an emotional piece of the imagery, or they might give me a kinesthetic bit of the imagery in terms of when well, I'm feeling myself kick a ball and I'm feeling myself go up for a header in a dominant way. So I'm kind of setting it up to then explain to them. And, and you know, within the, when I'm asking them about seeing, I'm asking them, are you seeing that through your own eyes? Are you seeing that from a third person? So it's kind of built in to the process of asking open questions into, say, the game face or any other technique I might work on that where I can expand it out into picturing or visualization or imagery. And as I'm actively listening, as one needs to do as a psychologist, I can take notes and I might be able to reflect back, well, what, I, what I'm hearing you say makes me think that you're really good at seeing this through your own eyes rather than the third person. And you're really good at feeling, kinesthetically feeling the actions as you're, as you're doing them. And I'm hoping to get some response from the player there. Um, and we'll go on and have a conversation there. I think if I've really got to make a decision, and, and, and this is where what's really interesting, you know, is I, I once said to a very prominent coach who said to me, Dan, I don't want you to work with my players. I want you to work only with my coaches. And I said, okay, no problem. This is a very, very prominent coach, very famous. I said, no problem at all. I completely understand because that's very much the trend these days for sports psychologists to work through the coaching staff. But in an ideal work world, you're also looking to work with the players as well, sometimes on a group basis where applicable, often on a, an individual basis, at least have the opportunity. But this person was pretty adamant that that wasn't going to happen. And I said, that's fine. Can I explain something to you? And I said, my dad was a London cabbie, a black cabbie for 50 years. I said to him, if you ask him to, to take you from King's Cross, I don't know, King's Cross to Bayswater, plucked off the top of my head there, King's Cross to Bayswater in London, my dad could tell you, probably 10 different ways to go if he got stuck in traffic as you inevitably do going from king's cross to bayswater he'll know all the shortcuts all the ways to get out of it coming to becoming tougher now in london because of the one-way systems but he knows lots of different ways and i said this is the thing when you're tr when you're asking me to work with coaches and through coaches i said i can do that I can give coaches, I can upskill them, and absolutely they're in a great position to deliver psychology, a crucial position to deliver psychology. And I can give them one or two or three ways to do this, but I can't give them 10 different ways. And the reason why I'm saying this story, like my dad can go 10 different ways and get out of different traffic jams, that's what a session is for me. And a good sports psychologist, not saying I'm a good sports psychologist, I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying that ultimately when you sit down for a session, you can go in 10 different directions. And we can talk about self-talk or imagery and, and relaxation techniques when we're talking about mental skills. And we can talk about a framework like motivational interviewing or solution-focused brief therapy or REBT. Or, and it's like, I can go in 10 different directions. I can ask questions based on just, my knowledge of this area and sports sites can and that i'm saying this because there's no fixed way and i might 
I might, I've just got to listen to what this person is saying to me. And I might say, Oh, right. My gut feeling here is this person needs to be better at his or her kinesthetic imagery. This person would really benefit from feeling the motion as he or she is seeing it. This person here is never, ever going to see it from inside their own perspective and needs to constantly see it from a third person. I'll sometimes get that wrong. I'll try and ask the questions pertinent to that. I might sit there and go, yeah, this person, this is, I'm not even going to waste my time with imagery because this person's just not having this at all. That's okay. Let's go over in this direction. So there, but that, that, that's what I'd say to that as well. But I think, look, I think imagery is, is a very important and useful tool. I think there's of all the psychological techniques, the research evidence is very strong for it, but I also think sometimes it gets overblown as well. You know, we have to be very careful. I, I'm not convinced about the mantra, see it to achieve it. In my opinion, that's just my opinion. I think achieving something requires a bit more than seeing it, but it certainly can be a part of the puzzle. That's for sure. So eliciting, gathering information, mm. and then encoding, decoding the information, what comes back to you. Mm. But once you've actually... Once you've gained access into the inner sanctum of professional clubs, those professional environments, Dan, mm. do you tend to be more of a fireman where they bring you in because of the big issue, the one that puts out the fires, or are you the one that actually puts the fire out before the fire? Mm -hmm. Both. But uh -huh. we, I don't know any psychologist who wouldn't say they would rather have the latter. I think this is... Ultimately, we live in a world of resources, don't we? Scarce resources. The, the definition of economics is the study of scarce resources between competing ends. I remember that from my A-level 25 years ago. Uh, it's the only thing I remember about economics, but it's scarce resources between competing ends, and there's competing ends within football clubs, sports clubs, sports teams. And reality is ultimately sports psychology is often at the bottom of the list. It's the one that loses out within the competing end. Um, and that's okay. That's just the landscape. That's just the way it is. And the ideal scenario is that you're given the opportunity to set up a situation whereby you're creating a great structure there. I was talking to somebody yesterday. Uh, she was telling me about the setup at, at Arsenal, which I know about anyway, but there's a director of psychology there with six full-time sports psychologists. Now that's Arsenal. So that, that at the very top, I'm probably scratching my head as to why that's not replicated across all sports, all clubs, a bigger part, because the finances are there in the Premier League. And I don't believe that is happening. In fact, I know that's not happening at every club. And I believe that that would be the optimal thing. And so that's answering your question, Keith, because it's saying we've got a strategy in place and that probably is ideally, ideally organisation driven rather than manager driven. And for instance, at the moment, Brighton and Hove Albion are putting in place a much better process whereby there's a wellbeing and performance psychology department there and that's there irrespective of who the manager is. And we can go off into conversations about the tension between organization-driven cultures in football and manager-driven cultures. And there is a tension there as to what the best model is. But 
I think sports psychology would benefit at the very adult elite level if they were organization driven cultures because you'd have that consistency. So you don't become firefighters, it's there all the time. And that group of sports psychologists can work closely with players, closely with coaches, and together, closely together, to create the best possible practice and the best possible processes within that practice across the organization, youngest ages at the academy to, through to the elite at the adult elite level, the first team level, supporting the coaches as well. That, that's vital. Realistically, even at championship level, that's, possibly not, that's probably not possible. Um, so at the top level, I think that should happen, and you should never be a firefighter. So let me answer that also in terms of lower levels and even down to grassroots. And I know I said about my dad was a black cabbie and doing, going through the coaches. The reality is we have to go through the coaches. We have to go through the coaches. We have to upskill coaches. I think, Keith and David, we need to be better at helping coaches be more passionate about psychosocial support. I humbly believe, and I have this within my psychosocial model of coaching, that the psychosocial sides drive the technical, tactical, and physical pieces. That's not to say psychosocial is more important. Some people would say, yes, I'm not here to say that, but I'm here to say that they drive the technical, tactical, and physical piece, pieces that drive participation and progression and performance, rather than the psychosocial pieces being in, say, a, a corner, like the four-corner model. And I understand why the English FA have the four-corner model and, and people like it, and that, that's great. And but what we need to be careful of is that we don't get to a position where coaches are going, well, I'm doing a site corner here. Oh, I'm doing a so social corner here. No, psychosocial is always happening. And we haven't been good enough at helping coaches understand that, that psychosocial happens every single second out on the pitch. Psychosocial happens every single second, listening, communication, body language, co-coaching, uh, constraining tasks conditions learning teaching psychosocial is happening all the time observation psychosocial is happening all the time and and that's we need to be better at helping coaches understand that that and then equipping them with the tools for them in their given context and sometimes that context is only an hour and a half on a wet Wednesday night, and you can still do psychology. For example, one minute at the beginning of your training session, rather than players kicking the ball straight away, gather them up and say, I want you, here we're going to go with the imagery side, for 30 seconds I want you to picture a really good, a, ten, a really, really good, an 8 or 9 or a 10 out of 10 session today. Picture it. What does that look like? What does that feel like? Get your players to envision it. Then maybe for 30 seconds get them to tell their mate next to them, what it looked like, what their mate's going to experience when they're 10 out of 10 or 9 out of 10, and then go do it. There's one minute of mental training that anybody can do at the beginning of any single session, whether it's at Arsenal or whether it's a wet Wednesday night, you know, anywhere for, for an hour and a half. So I, I think we need to equip coaches. We help, have to help them understand that it's psychosocial, psychosocial is always happening, and then we need to equip them better. We have to make them excited about doing it. We have to help them make sense. Last thing to say, make sense of psychosocial, because it's so broad 
and it's a little bit deep at times and that breadth can be intimidating and the depth can be intimidating and that's where i'm trying to do things like game face squashing ants using controllers sticking to your match script little buzzwords that i've written about since soccer tough in 2012 that i'd like to think brings this side of things alive and you know i know it's the anniversary of your book gold dust which is an awesome book it, it's books like that 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 help coaches to have a clearer picture of what psychology in, in football and sport is i couldn't agree more dan where you mentioned the psychosocial it's not a corner it overlaps everything and it's it's one of those things and we had a, a really good discussion about it when we came onto your podcast that when you feel good about something it generally goes better so if we were to look at technical practice if you may be able to the player you might have a player that you're working with that is struggling with it not because technically they're struggling but because upstairs they've got this imagery or the, the self-talk or whatever it may be that oh, I can't do it. I can't do this. I can't. No, it's too difficult. Well, we know that they can do it and it could be the same from a tactical aspect or a physical aspect that really the underpinning thing is what's going on upstairs and what can we do as coaches, as psychologists and as parents and guardians to help this athlete this young person, this professional athlete, whatever level they're at, to get optimal performance. Now, I'm going to, I've mentioned parents and guardians and I'm going to ask a question of you regarding that. Are there any key messages that you could give to parents and guardians and how to best help the son or daughter to overcome setbacks such as injuries, dips in performance, maturation, those kind of things? I know for sure that something like, like a game face, you know, if we're talking about a period of poor play, if we're going to use the word slump, let's use the word slump, a period of poor play, a slump, you know, something like parents. And I, I think this is where parents and players can really work together. You know, this is where parents don't have to pretend to be Jose Mourinho or Jill Ellis. They can, they can just be a parent or a guardian and but they can still help with say a game face they can talk to their child about their best performances and help them strip this back into key words and then help them focus on being in their key words rather than worrying overly worrying about performance because coming back to some of the answers i've given tonight that's what's happening in a in a slump of uh, of, of form so helping players with their mental skills I think is vital in that respect I think injury as well as the other factors that you've spoken about and I'm going to touch on language again here when we're dealing with anxious stressful situations we tend to slip into catastrophizing mode and so parents would do well to look out notice here the language their child is engaging in if their child is very upset often that will be accompanied with an attitude of it will be a disaster um i can't do it it will be the end of 
not so much I can't do, but it will be the end of the world if, and so on and so forth. And just trying to help them dial down on the emotion by choosing better words rather than catastrophizing end of the world. And again, I have to say, guys, a game face helps there because it's, it, it, it's helping your child go, look, hey, I can't control, you can't control performance, but you can be in your game face. Let's have some fun being in our game face. Clearly, and it's almost cliche to say it these days, em- emphasizing fun, so avoiding talk of performance yourself as a parent and certainly of outcome. Maybe even avoiding terms like play well. And again, coming back to the things that they think about, the things that they can control, great body language, game face, self-talk, etc. I think helping your child focus on the things that they can control, things about themselves is really useful as well. So hopefully that gives you some food for thought. You do strip it back often, interestingly, to some of the same things. And I don't think that's a bad thing because there's a difference between simple and easy. It's super simple to talk about this stuff. And when you do a podcast like this, and it's, it's really, you know, it's great. It's great to talk about it, but you can come back to the same things. You think, oh, that's the same thing. But it's like, but those same things aren't easy to do. They're really not easy to do. So reinforcing those things, setting them up as habitual practices, that's the key for me. Dan, your passion comes out comes out in your responses and you've also mentioned about soccer tough one of the books you've authored Uh, you mentioned also match script which is in that book i acquired the book a few years ago in actual fact and uh, anyone out there that's listening to this podcast to employ to go out and buy the book dan on behalf of david and myself for Coming along and sharing some of the some of your wonderful insight in the the world of sports psychology. So thank you very much, Dan. It's been wonderful having you on board, and continue the good work. Well, Keith, just allow me to say thank you very much for for um, inviting me on. I've really really enjoyed it. Great questions, and um, you know, honoured to be on. And I want to say I know that. Your, you mentioned my book, and I know that your book is uh, around about a year old at, at this time. So, uh, congratulations on that, guys, and, and thank you for inviting me on. And uh, I look forward to keeping the conversation with you both. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>